Welcome to Shield of the Republic, a podcast sponsored by the Bulwark and the Miller Center of Public Affairs at the University of Virginia, and dedicated to the proposition articulated in World War II by Walter Lippmann that a strong and balanced foreign policy is the shield of our democratic republic. I'm Eric Edelman. I'm a counselor at the Center for Strategic and Budgetary Assessments, a Bulwark contributor, and a non-resident fellow at the Miller Center. And I'm joined by my partner in strategery, uh, Elliot Cohen, the Robert Osgood Professor at SAIS and the Arlie Burke Chair in Strategy at the Center for Strategic and International Studies. Welcome, Elliot. Good to be uh, back, Eric. And it's good to be back with a, a mutual friend, uh, Barry Strauss, and uh, where there's a, there's a deeper connection, which we covered in an earlier podcast, but I'll let you run with that one. Well, let me introduce our guest. Our guest is Barry Strauss, who's the uh, Bryce and Edith Bomar Professor in Humanistic Studies, uh, as well as a Professor of History and Classics at my alma mater, Cornell University. Uh, He's also the Corliss Dean Page Fellow at the Hoover Institution and the series editor of Princeton University Press's Turning Points in Ancient History, as well as the host of the Antiquitas podcast. If you're interested in ancient history, you should definitely tune in and listen to Barry's Ancient History podcast. And he is the author of too many books to list on ancient history, and all of them one better uh, than another. I also have to add, he is my son Terrence's favorite author. And he got that all on his own. It, it wasn't, you know, for me. I mean, uh, Barry is, is an old friend. He and I were teaching assistants together for uh, our common mentor, uh, Elliot Al Bernstein, as well as students together of the late Donald Kagan. And I, let me just uh, jump in. I'll add there's, uh, we have, first, uh, I was introduced to Barry by Al, but not to be outdone, Barry was also one of my son uh, Nathan's favorite professors when he attended Cornell. So this whole thing is extraordinarily incestuous, but we can get away with it. It's our podcast. Exactly. And we're going to start today talking about Barry's most recent book, which is just appearing as we speak, The War That Made the Roman Empire, Antony, Cleopatra, and Octavian at Actium. And it's a great book. It's a terrific read, like all of Barry's books. But Elliot, why don't I you know, let you kick us off by starting at Actium? Before I do that, let me uh, soften up Barry a little bit more so that he doesn't quite know what to expect. I recently read two of his most recent books, Ten Caesars, Roman Emperors from Augustus to Constantine, and The Death of Caesar, the story of history's most famous assassination. They're wonderful books. They're really wonderful books. And I, I would say Ten Caesars in particular is a fascinating study in statecraft. And even if you know a fair bit of Roman history, it's just extraordinarily illuminating. Okay, so enough with the soft soap. What was the Battle of Actium, and why should anybody care? Glad to answer. First of all, let me thank you, Elliot and Eric, for having me on your podcast and for finally giving me a chance to get a word in edgewise. No, but seriously. (laughs) So the Battle of Actium took place on September 2nd, 31 BC, and for that alone we should be grateful because we don't often know the exact date of battles in ancient history. No, just kidding. Tremendously important battle because it decided the fate of the Roman Empire. Uh, the players were, on the one hand, one of the most famous power couples in history, Antony and Cleopatra, and on the other hand, uh, Octavian uh, and his brilliant admiral, Marcus Agrippa. If the battle had gone the other way, then Antony would have become the ruler of the Roman Empire with Cleopatra at his side, 
And the empire would have been ruled from two capitals, not just from Rome, but also from Alexandria. And Rome would have turned eastward instead of going westward, as it did. Eventually, Rome does turn eastward, of course, centuries later with Constantinople. But the fact that there were these centuries between them, the centuries when it was looking westward, uh, really made a difference. Uh, it allowed Rome to conquer Britain, to take at least part of Germany, although certainly not all of it. It allowed for the development of Latin literature and thought. And one of the reasons why we speak a, a Latin-based language today, or partly Latin-based language, not a Greek-based language, is because of, of this Roman heritage and because of the results of this battle. I think that if Antony and Cleopatra had won, then the Western world, such as it was, would be a lot more like the Eastern world. Um, and, you know, if you think of Byzantium, if you think of Russia, if you think of that heritage and you think of the heritage of the Islamic world, I think that's more what our world would be like today uh, than what it is. So, so Actium was a really very important battle. You know, one thing that I noticed in, in reading the book, I'm, I'm writing a book uh, myself on Shakespeare. And, oh, great. you know, it, it is striking to me how the ghost of Shakespeare hovers over a lot of the Roman history that you've written, whether it's about the assassination of Caesar, Julius Caesar, the story of Antony and Cleopatra. And, and I dare say that a lot of the images that we have of particularly of Antony and Cleopatra, to some extent of Octavius, are shaped by Shakespeare. So I was wondering if you could point out for us, what are the areas where you think Shakespeare really does capture the essence of these personalities? What are the areas where actually he's kind of misled us somewhat? Well, he certainly captures the charm, uh, the seductiveness, and the genius, really, of Cleopatra. I mean, that comes out so powerfully in, in the play. Uh, likewise, the, the sense that Antony is a, a hail fellow, well met, uh, that he's a soldier's soldier, uh, that also comes out very well in a play. And that Octavian, or Octavius as he is in the play, uh, is a spider king. You know, that, I think that's all very, very true. Uh, I think Shakespeare, who's basing his story on Plutarch, underestimates Cleopatra, or perhaps underestimates the degree to which she and Antony were working together at the battle. And in Shakespeare, Cleopatra betrays Antony, leaving him at the battle uh, when he very much wanted her to stay. In reality, I think she was carrying out a prearranged plan to, to lead the breakout from the battle that was almost certainly going to be necessary. Uh, so I think he gets that wrong. But Shakespeare certainly gets the greatness of these characters, their nobility, uh, the magnitude of the stakes that they are they are playing for, and just the power of the poetry in Shakespeare. I mean, one of the things that, that bothers me about a lot of the history of Antony and Cleopatra is I think the story that a lot of historians want to tell is that they never really were in love with each other. This was just a politics. This was a business arrangement. Uh, it was, uh, you know, like like a mafia marriage or something. I don't buy that. I really don't buy that. I think passion really counts in in politics and human affairs. And and I, I like Shakespeare's story better. I really think there was uh, passion and fire between these two, and that had something to do with the story of what happened. You know, that's a wonderful point. The the uh, I think sometimes we forget that politicians are people too, and they have the passions and the the quirks and the strengths and weaknesses of other human beings. 
can I ask just one one other question? Then throw it over to you, uh, Eric. This is a large question, I suppose. So maybe we should take different bites at it. I think one of the things that's wonderful about all of your books is you go to the places that you write about, which I think historians should absolutely always do. So you convey a wonderful sense of place. But I'm also struck by the particular craft of uh, historiographical craft of ancient historians. Uh, In fact, I remember speaking to our mutual friend and mentor, Al Bernstein, about this, uh, about how you extract arguments and evidence from you know a coin here, a coin there, an inscription here, an inscription there. Can you talk yeah. about that? Because, I mean, you rely on Plutarch too, to some extent, mm-hmm. but would you clearly yeah. go beyond that? So what are the dimensions that you get from all the other tools of the trade that a contemporary Roman historian can bring to bear? Sure. And, and uh, you know, I can't uh, praise Al enough or thank him enough for uh, both how inspiring he was and how good he was at just interrogating the evidence. And that's what I see myself as trying to do, uh, is also to interrogate the evidence. Uh, Plutarch's very important, and I have spent more hours than I care to think tearing uh, Plutarch apart, using the great commentaries that exist on Plutarch, um, and, and trying to unpack what he's saying and where it comes from. But you've also got to look at the material cultural evidence and a couple of things in particular stand out. First of all, Antony and Cleopatra and Octavian left coins. They left coins like crazy and they used coins for propaganda. Um, I mean, the, the coins were the key communication tools of the time. Each one of them is equivalent of a tweet and then some. They also left statues behind, at least Cleopatra and Octavian did, Antony's statues were by and large destroyed uh, by Octavian after he became a non-person, uh, which the Romans were quite good at. Uh, but there's archaeological evidence that's tremendously important. So one of the great moments of my career happened, unbeknownst to me, on October 17th, 1978, when I was a graduate student in Greece, uh, and I traveled to the site of the Battle of Actium. Uh, and among my fellow students were two people who were going to devote their lives to studying this site. Because at the site, um, Octavian, a later Augustus, uh, built what he called Victory City, Nicopolis. And its crowning monument was an altar and memorial at the site of his headquarters at the time of Battle Actium. Uh, he left an inscription and he also put up 35 rams, or about 35 rams that were captured from Antony and Cleopatra. Uh, my colleague, Bill Murray, who's now a distinguished professor at the University of, uh, of South Florida, uh, has studied these rams' uh, cuttings in detail and he's able to reconstruct. Uh, the ships, and also to tell us about the tactics that the ships used and the craft that went into building them and just who uh, built them. It's a marvelous example of historical detective work. Uh, My other colleague, uh, Costa Zakos uh, of the Greek Archaeological Service, um, has studied the fragments of the art of the site and was able to reconstruct some of the ideology and the message that Octavian wanted to give out after the battle. So very important part of doing ancient history is looking at the archaeological evidence, and then try to look at it as a historian and see, ask what it can tell us about history. You know, I'm glad you opened up this, you know, line of questioning, Elliot, because I became acquainted with Don Kagan and through Don Al Bernstein when I decided to do my minor field in uh, graduate school in, at Yale, where Barry and I were both graduate students, as 
um, having been <laughs> undergraduates at the same institution for you know completely absurd reasons, which I won't even bother you with. You were supposed to do an unrelated field, and most American historians did their unrelated field in in Tudor Stuart, England, which is about as unrelated to America as your you know shin bone is to your your knee bone. <laughs> and I, I wasn't happy with that, and I I ended up in Don Kagan's seminar on on the Peloponnesian War um, and doing ancient Greece with him. And it was the best thing that ever happened to me as a historian, and it prepared me for my later career in the Foreign Service. And I say that because modern historians have sort of the opposite problem that Barry was just describing. You know, so Barry has you know some coins and a couple of passages from Plutarch and maybe some other uh, literary sources and maybe some inscriptions as well as, you know, some of the artwork from Nicopolis, et cetera, in which to interpret this, you know, entire battle. And so as, as he just said, you have to interrogate the evidence very, very carefully. Modern historians have the opposite problem, right? They're, they're flooded with this surfeit of information. There's, you know, way too much of it for, you know, for most modern historians to to be able to to manage uh, to get through. I mean, I was talking to one of the archivists a couple of years ago about the emails that were accessioned from the uh, George W. Bush administration that you and I served in, Elliot. There were two billion of them accessioned by the archivist. For me, the discipline of ancient history forced me to think much more carefully about evidence when I did work as a, you know, modern historian. And then when I went into the foreign service and ended up in Moscow and had to interpret Soviet foreign policy developments from a couple of passages in Pravda and Izvestia, you know, some pictures of the leadership up on, on Lenin's tomb and maybe some interviews with a couple of academics and then, uh, you know, a handful of other pieces of evidence because we just didn't have much. So it's. Uh, I'm, I'm glad you you know you raised this this piece uh, because I think it's really important and and I think Barry's unusually skilled in taking that evidence and then turning it into a very compelling narrative. One of the things Barry that you observe about these fascinating characters, you know, Antony, Cleopatra, Octavian, is um, Octavian's skill at gaining military advantage from political circumstances, even though he was not, you've written a lot about the great captains of the ancient world. Octavian probably wouldn't rank in the, maybe even the top 10, right? Uh, you know, of, of military captains, yet he turns out to be very right. successful. Okay. Explain that. How does that, how does that work? How does that happen? Yeah. Yeah. It is kind of fascinating. I completely agree. Um, not one of the top 10 great captains, but he, he understands war uh, he's learned about it. He sat at the foot of the master, Julius Caesar, his great uncle. Um, and he has, he knows his own limitations. He's courageous. He fights in battles, but he knows he's not the guy to command the army and to decide on the tactics, but he always chooses the right person. And, um, you know, in particular, uh, his childhood friend who becomes his, his indispensable commander is Marcus Agrippa. Uh, and, you know, Octavian doesn't say to Agrippa, you do everything, whatever you say is fine. I think they work together um, with uh, Octavian understanding the political realities and also the greater strategic realities. And Agrippa uh, is the guy who can carry out the details of the, the tactics and can sell operations to Octavian and say, this is, this is how we should do it. Uh, 
But Octavian also is willing to take risks. He has a good sense of of the necessity to take risks and what risks will work and what risks won't work. I think that's that's a that's a big part of what he does as well. He knows when to attack, when to um, when to hold back. And he's willing to be overruled. So on the eve of the Battle of Actium, Octavian has a terrible plan as to what to do, which is basically to let Antony and Cleopatra escape. And Agrippa says, no, boss, this is really a bad idea. We have to fight. And Octavian says, okay, you you know, I'll go with you. I think it's really interesting that the historical record uh, relates that because Octavian basically got to write the history books and uh, he let that through, which tells us very good things about him, I think. I mean, he also ends up in Agrippa. I mean, part of the fascinating story here is that Anthony is a pretty accomplished general yeah. and the commander of, of land forces. Yeah. And Rome, and you've written about this elsewhere, Rome is known as you know a land power, but here right. it's sea power that ends up being triumphant. Can you talk a little bit about how that happens? So, I mean, one of Rome's great reasons for Rome's success over the centuries or millennia is its adaptability. I mean, the Romans are just endlessly adaptable. Their default mode is land power. That's what they do when they can get away with it. But when they have to go to sea power, they do go to sea power. Uh, Two moments in particular stand out. One is the second Punic War, excuse me, the first Punic War against Carthage, when Rome is one of the few powers in history that successfully does the transition from being an elephant to being a whale and defeats Carthage at sea. Really remarkable. And then again, uh, at uh, after Caesar's death, Caesar never had much of a navy. He just wasn't a navy guy. His, his opponent, Pompey, was the guy who had the navy. And Caesar manages to win the war, even though he doesn't have a navy. Uh, and then Pompey's navy comes back uh, and bites Octavian because Pompey's surviving son, Sextus Pompey, sets up a base in Sicily that becomes the his center. And he uses it with his fleet to raid Italy and basically make life miserable for Octavian. To defeat him, Octavian has to build a fleet from scratch. And he does so by getting Agrippa, who's a land commander uh, and who has the basic Roman engineering mentality, first of all, to build a port, a new port in the Bay of Naples that is sheltered from uh, the view of the enemies. And secondly, to build a fleet, which like the original Roman fleets, can win battles by turning naval battles into land battles at sea. Uh, And there's a lot of trial and error also, another thing Octavian is really, really good at, he's just really good at getting people to defect and come to his side over and over and over again. He knows how to play people. He knows how to play military people. He knows how to get generals and admirals to come to his side. And through this combination of Agrippa building this, you know, engineer's fleet, uh, this land army at sea, and by getting some of Pompey's generals, admirals to defect, Agrippa and Octavian are able to defeat Pompey entirely, destroy their navy, and come out on top and and and, and have this great navy in the central Mediterranean. I mean, it does occur to me that there's a bit of a parallel here to the first Punic War, where the yeah. Romans, this land power confronting a naval power, say, oh, I guess we've got to build ourselves a navy, and they go about doing it. And it's, mm-hmm. you know, it, it, it is quite a remarkable thing. I have a um, a question for you. One of the things that strikes me is, I, you know, I find the numbers of troops and sailors that you're talking about fantastic. I mean, just we're talking about military armies of you know, 100,000 or more. 
Mm-hmm. And I, you know, I look at uh, what we're what we're seeing right now in uh, Ukraine of the mm-hmm. the Russian army being stopped in its tracks because it can't support itself. It's even having yeah. trouble feeding itself. Yeah. And I, I mean, the Romans must have also had a genius for logistics. How did they keep all those people fed? In, in fact, Antony and Cleopatra didn't. Um, so the Romans did have a genius for logistics, and they understood the importance of striking at the enemy's strategy and striking at the energy's enemy's supplies. They had done it numerous times before, and in fact, Agrippa does it in the Sicilian campaign when he's fighting Sextus Pompey. That's his playbook, and he unveils the playbook against Antony and Cleopatra. So Antony and Cleopatra know that they can't feed their army and their navy from Greece, which is a poor country. It just doesn't produce enough grain and resources to do it. And they have this very long tail, this very long supply line stretching back all the way to Egypt and Syria. And it is very vulnerable. If you can get behind their lines and you can get into it and take knock off their supply line, you put them really at a disadvantage. And that's precisely what Agrippa does. I mean, that's he takes a risk by sending out a fleet in March around this time um, when the seas are still kind of rough uh, and they don't go to the nearest point from Italy to the west coast of Greece where Antony and Cleopatra are. In fact, they go to the farthest point. Um, they go to Methoni, all the way in the southwestern corner of the Peloponnesus. Uh, and they carry out something that's not easy to do, a successful amphibious attack where they take a fortified place at land, on land. Uh, they take it by storm. They defeat it. They kill the commander. And they maintain control of it. I mean, that is a great coup. Uh, and really bad news for Antony and Cleopatra. So, yeah, it's really hard to feed these armies, and and it, it's a major science. If you ask the average person to name a uh, prominent woman from uh, Roman times, certainly, but maybe even Roman and Greek times, they'd say Cleopatra. You know, uh, maybe it's because of Elizabeth Taylor in the movies, but she is a mesmerizing personality. Shakespeare portrays her actually in quite a complicated way as something of an enchantress, but also a crafty politician. She does seem to have had this extraordinary ability to seduce men, and I don't just mean it in the sexual sense, although that was there too, clearly, but to entrance them with one exception of Octavian, who you capture that uh, very cold-bloodedly in the book where she's trying to seduce him and it's just, it's not working. Can you say something about her as a personality? It must have just been fascinating to try to figure out who she really was and what was it about her that was just so incredibly powerful? Well, Cleopatra, I think, is just one of the prime examples of the importance of personality in history. I mean, she is a survivor. She comes from this family that for whom politics is a blood sport and they kill each other. Uh, but she manages to come out on top because of her political skill, but also because of her uh, political skill and her charm. She is immensely seductive, but she's brilliant. I mean, she's a brilliant woman. She speaks at least seven languages. And I, I like to imagine her and Julius Caesar together. I, I think they're two of the, the greatest minds of the age. Just imagining them as a couple. It must have been spectacular and, and even explosive when the two of them were together. Um, she's a great strategist. She has a really strong sense of what she wants to do. She has this powerful sense of her dynasty, that she has this heritage. 
she's as close as you can get to Alexander the Great, but she's also Egypt. In some sense, she's in, you know, following in the footsteps of Hatshepsut, and she's a mother. She really wants her children to survive and for the dynasty to survive and for her kingdom to, to manage to, to find its way and not be swallowed up by Rome. You know, Egypt has done all that it can. It's barely held on. And the only reason it hasn't been swallowed up by Rome is that the Romans are too jealous of each other to allow any one of them to take Egypt. Uh, and she's all that stands between Rome and Egypt. And she just carries out this, this brilliant balancing act. She knows a lot about war, too. It's very impressive how much she knows about war. She's got to be the brains behind this fleet. You know, Ant, you know, Octavian builds a great fleet, but Antony builds a great fleet as well. And it is an Egyptian fleet. It's very much the kind of fleet the Ptolemies built. It's a fleet that only their engineers would have built. Um, it's got Cleopatra written all over it. So I find her very impressive. You know, you do wonder... Uh, I mean, Augustus, as Octavian becomes, mm -hmm. really puts his stamp on the Roman Empire right. for the rest of its history. To some extent, his his wife, Livia, does mm -hmm. as well. You, you wonder if the Roman Empire had really been taken over by Mark Antony and Cleopatra, what kind of stamp do you think she might have put on the, Roman, the later Roman Empire? Uh, that's a really good question. I mean, we know that even with their defeat, the Romans were very taken with the goddess Isis. Uh, if they had won, um, Cleopatra, who considered who was considered to be the earthly incarnation of Isis, I think you would have seen the Isis cult um, and the cult of the mother would have become immensely important in Rome, um, far more uh, than it even was. Rome was on its way to becoming the greatest Greek city of the world uh, in, during the height of the empire. And I think it would have become even more so, although I guess it would have shared that with Alexandria. Uh, you Greek culture in Alexandria would have blossomed. I don't know that there would have been an Aeneid. That's an interesting question. You might have seen an epic written in Greek about, about Antony and Cleopatra, or perhaps one in Latin. Uh, but it would have been a, a, a more Eastern-looking place then than it was. And would Alexander have been the great ancestor in that case? Yeah, you know, well, so the Romans loved Alexander. And to some extent, the Alexander that we have today is the Roman Alexander. We, It's ironic that we have very few contemporary sources about Alexander. They must all come from the Roman period. Uh, but there would have been, that's a very shrewd point. I think there would have even been more of that. You know, I think we underestimate the degree to which the Roman Empire was really the Greco-Roman Empire. And if you look at the sources that a Roman historian has to read, a huge number of them are in Greek. I mean, they're not in Latin. Uh, it would have been even more like that way. And if you ask yourself, what were the best-selling books of the Roman Empire? What are the two best-selling books of the Roman Empire today? The New Testament is number one, and the Meditations of Marcus Aurelius is number two. And they're both written in Greek. They're not written in Latin. So <laughs> That's a really interesting uh, thought, isn't it? Can I, I, I want to ask one other question, which is something I've always wondered about. It, th this war, like the ones immediately preceding it, around Caesar's death, and even, of course, before Caesar's death, were civil wars, Romans killing Romans on a gargantuan scale. And yet, uh, although Romans were willing to do that later on, too, you 
somehow once Augustus, as Octavian becomes, takes the empire and it settles in, you don't you don't particularly have a feeling of this leaving, you know, really deep scars uh, in the way that you know, say the American Civil War did. Now maybe that's because ours was you know more territorially defined, but but it it is striking to me. I mean, what what are the consequences of having gone through decade after decade? of Romans killing each other. Not just, we're not just talking about peasants. I mean, for me, the most chilling part of it is Antony having Cicero killed, you know, the greatest orator of the age, this you know, philosopher, a moderate man, basically. And yet somehow they get over it. Or am I mistaken in that? They do get over it, but at a, at a very big price. The price is the end of the Republic. And its replacement with a monarchy and an agreement to limit Roman freedom of speech. I mean, uh, Augustus is essentially a dictator. Uh, and it's Antony who has the clever idea of abolishing the term dictator, saying, end of problem. We just won't call anyone a dictator, any, dictator anymore. But he was ahead of his time. Of course, Augustus is a dictator and people are killed for having the wrong opinions. Octavian signs off on the murder of Cicero. Um, he's he's okay with it. I'm not saying he loves it, but he's okay with it. He's willing to tolerate it. Um, and Octavian's probably responsible for the death of a hundred Roman senators in the in the civil wars. And the Rome that emerges from from the civil wars is hardly a Stalinist regime, but it's not nearly as free as the Rome that existed before the civil war, before the before the end of the Republic. It's it, there's a much tighter lid on things than there had been, and people write literature in the in the in the empire about the horrors of the civil war. The great epic poem about the civil war, the Pharsalia, uh, is written in in the empire, um, and so the, the, the Romans they do look over their shoulders at the horrible world that they have left behind, and they shudder at it. And it has it has traces in our own. Founding. I mean, the constant inveighing by the founders against faction is a hangover from their study of antiquity. Uh, and the, precisely what you just described, Barry, which is the end of the Republic and the, the rise of a monarchy. They're, the founders are extremely versed in all of this history, the sources that you rely on, the literary sources, that is, and draw from it the lesson that, you know, republics are fragile. That's a really important point, I think. Yeah, no, I agree. Um, it, it, you know, it, it has influenced uh, American history and certainly the American founding, the sense, as you say, of just how uh, easy it was to what well, wasn't easy, but republics are fragile. The fr fragility of the republic certainly is something that they had in mind and that Roman history taught them about very eloquently. I wonder, Barry, if you could talk about the kind of asymmetric character of the battle and really yeah. the struggle between Octavian and, and Antony that you describe. I mean, if you were a betting man at the time, you probably would have bet on Antony. And yet Octavian wins. Talk a little bit about how that happens. And, and I know, for instance, that there were the equivalent of operations that we would now describe as special uh, forces kinds of operations. I know you, can, yeah. you consulted with some some Navy SEALs to, to talk I about. Did. Tell us a little bit about, about this asymmetrical struggle, how Octavian comes out on top, the special forces quality. And, and I'd be really interested if you see any parallels to some of what we're seeing contemporaneously with Russia and Ukraine in the sense that a 
sure. a force that people wouldn't have bet on on February 23rd seems to be getting the better yeah. of the the stronger, more powerful, well-financed force. You know, great questions. I mean, so often in history, the side that has the more money and that has um, the bigger weapons and the shinier weapons thinks I can intimidate the enemy. You know, all I have to do is roll out there um, and it's not going to be that difficult to defeat the enemy. Um, and, you know, Antony and Cleopatra clearly make a classic mistake. Uh, they are risk averse, which is another mistake. Uh they're politically shrewd. They know that Octavian has got a weak base in Italy. Uh, Italians are rioting because they don't want to pay the taxes that are necessary to pay for his army. There's no such problem in the East because Cleopatra is so wealthy. She can fund, she can fund the Navy and Antony is supporting those riots. Um, but they underestimate the degree to which, um, Octavian and Agrippa are willing to take risks. So they, they take this great risk of sending a fleet uh, across the Ionian Sea in March at the start of the sailing season uh, to go far away from their home base and attack the enemy's supply lines. And they, they succeed. And that, that, that pays off over uh, and over again when they do that. And by doing that, the special forces aspect of it is uh, that it, it takes a certain people, to, a certain kind of person uh, to carry out an operation like this. Uh, they had to sail in a way so that they were not noticed by the enemy, so they had to stay far enough away from shore. Uh, and then they had to be not noticed by the enemy when they attacked. So you're going to want to have the attack probably in the pre-dawn hours. That's a classic time uh, to do it. You want to take the enemy unawares. Um, and you also are going to have to have local intelligence. You'll need a pilot to get your ships in close to um, close to shore, uh, especially if it's dark. So you're really going to have to have really excellent intelligence to uh, to do this. Uh, the other thing that must be said, and I suspect it's a factor in the Ukraine war as well, is that um, Octavian and Agrippa had been forced to learn the art of war. Antony thought, this is great. Pompey is going to keep uh, Octavian busy fighting a naval battle and it's going to be fruitless. Likewise, the Russians have kept the uh, Ukrainians uh, busy fighting in, uh, fighting in eastern Ukraine over the years. But the result of all that uh, was that each side learned a lot about how you fight a war. Uh, and they were much better prepared when it came to the show, as it were, than they would have been otherwise. So I, I see that as an analogy. Barry, I want to ask one more question, sure. if I could, yeah. about the book, and then yeah. uh, maybe we can talk about some more contemporary things, because sure. I think you're something to teach there. I, I don't know about you. I found whenever I've written a book, I find myself surprised by something, mm -hmm. even if it's a subject that I think I know well. Were there any surprises in this book for you? I was surprised at how realistic it would have been for Antony and Cleopatra to attack Italy. I started out on the assumption they had no choice. They had to stay on uh, the west coast of Greece and wait for the enemy. Uh, but I was surprised to realize, especially when I looked at the new archaeological evidence about the ships, that actually they had a real shot at attacking Italy uh, and taking a fortified place like Brindisium and Tarentum and bringing the war to the enemy. I think that would have been a good strategy for them. I think that would have been the, their best move. 
Um, the other thing that surprised me is I hadn't realized just how well and how cagely Octavian carried out the campaign for the five months or so when he was encamped outside of Actium, so north of Antony, um, and how well he resisted the temptation of going out and fighting a pitch battle against Antony. Clearly, that's what Antony wanted, uh, and Octavian showed a lot of self-control uh, that I wasn't thought was there, didn't think was there. One other thing that surprised me, I was absolutely certain that no matter what else was true, there was no way that Cleopatra was killed by those snakes. But I came to the conclusion that actually she probably was, that I consulted a colleague of mine at Cornell, a herpetologist, uh, and he convinced me, you know what, that could have been real. It's very plausible. It's entirely plausible. So it's another stroke for uh, Shakespeare. Another stroke for Shakespeare, yeah. So let me ask, to maybe to shift it to contemporary times, so yeah. as something, then I hand it over to Eric. And here you are teaching, I think it's fair to say, quite traditional history, high politics, yeah. war, yeah. King, kings and queens in a modern university at, at a time when a lot of people are, are rather critical of universities for reasons good and bad. Mm -hmm. I'm just curious, what is your take on, uh, particularly given what you do and how you approach it, on the state of free speech, of uh, being willing, people being willing to entertain disagreeable thoughts and notions, open debate on college campuses? It's a great question. It's not as bad as some people say, but it's not as good as we would like. That would be my, my short answer uh, of it. I mean, nobody gives me a hard time at all for teaching military history. That's the main thing that I do. And of course, I do ancient history, but we go into modern stuff and military theory and whatnot. And it's pretty bloody and trigger warning. And I don't get any flack from that at all uh, from my colleagues. Nonetheless, everybody knows that there are things you can talk about and things that you can't talk about in the modern university and, and ways to talk about things in uh, ways that you wouldn't talk about things. Am I being too, am I being too, too, too uh, elliptical, too cryptic? No, I'm just thinking how much our mutual mentor, Al Bernstein would have had trouble in the modern university. He would have had trouble. He would have had trouble in the modern university. You know, for what it's worth, that's basically my take from, from my own experiences. It's, not quite as bad as people think, but it's not nearly as good as people would like it exactly. to be. I want to close us out, if I can, with uh, something that ties the world of antiquity that we've been talking about to the modern day. And that is, I frequently think that policy analysts, even historians, modern historians, think that there's been lots of, you know, change in the human condition, you know, that, you know, we're, we don't really have that much to learn from the ancients. And when I think about Thucydides and the three things he say, said that spark wars, fear, honor, interest. Yeah. And I look at what's going on today and I think nothing has changed in, <laughs> you know, in uh, 2,500 years. Can you take us home in this podcast with your reflections on, on that, the enduring quality of the human condition and how, how it leads to things like what we're seeing in Ukraine? 
Oh, yeah. I mean, I, I, I so agree with that. I mean, for instance, when you see the tactics that the Ukrainians are using, these this light, uh, light arm troops um, who are going over after these heavy, clunky Russians. I was teaching uh, a week or so ago about how uh, the Athenians in, during the Corinthian War, after the Peloponnesian War, how they shocked the Spartans by having their light arm troops who went after the Spartan hoplites and the Spartan heavy armed infantrymen didn't know what hit them. They had no idea how to, how to respond to that tactics. And I thought nothing changes, nothing's changed. You know, it's, it's the same sort of thing that we see today. What struck me, you know, what, what has always struck me is when uh, Thucydides describes the civil war in Corsaira, mm-hmm. today's Corfu. Yeah. Uh, and and describes civil wars as being the most violent and the most brutal. Yes. And and I think about Putin saying, "I want to you know liberate Ukraine because we're really Slavic brothers." Mm. And then thinking about what's going on in Kharkiv and Mariupol and mm-hmm. you know other other parts of Ukraine, and it just to me says nothing's changed in twenty five hundred years. No, I don't think it has. I don't think it has, and, and you know, and uh, I feel really glad that I've studied the ancients and that I studied, you know, I studied military theory. Uh, so often, Sun Tzu and Clausewitz just jump off the page when you look at what's going on in, in the world today. And I feel sorry. I know, I know that you have. I know that you, you and Elliot has as well, and written brilliantly about it. Uh, I feel sorry for people who are looking at this and who haven't studied that. And I think. It's so terrible in our universities today. We don't have more people teaching military history and military theory and diplomatic history. How are we preparing people to be citizens and to have intelligent opinions about this when they're not studying it, when they don't know what it is? It should be part of our education. Um, it just needs to be more. Of course, there are many people who teach it, but not enough and not enough people who study it. And it's not pushed enough by our institutions. So... And you guys have done so much to, to make it happen, to make people study it. Well, no one's done more to get the lessons of uh, antiquity to a large public audience than uh, you have over the last uh, two decades. So, Barry Strauss, thank you so much for uh, joining us uh, today on uh, Shield of the Republic. We're grateful to have the time with you and to talk about this terrific new book. Having followed you for years, I know that within a year or two, we're going to have <laughs> a, another book that we're going to have to bring you back for. What What are you working on now? And we'll, we'll close it out on that. You know, that, that's the most horrible question you can ask. I know. An academic, Eric. I know. They, they just put the book out. It's, okay, what's the next one? But oh, actually, I'm curious too. So <laughs> It's a little different. It's called Rebels, Jewish Revolts Against the Roman Empire. Well, Eric and I fit that mold. <laughs> we'll be, we'll definitely have you back for that one. Okay. <laughs> Barry Strauss, thanks you. so much for Thanks joining so much us. for having me, Eric and, and Ellen. Thanks, Barry. Just, thank you. It was great.